Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Dr. Wendy Sukir, one of Canada's leading experts in disruptive technologies, innovation processes, and diversity. She has written more than 200 papers on technology, innovation, and management, and is co-author of the bestseller Innovation Nation, Canadian Leadership from Java to Jurassic Park. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to our listeners from around the world, including the UK, Ireland, India, and so many other countries. Tell your friends we want our community to spread. So, Dr. Sukir, you've created all kinds of interesting programs for students to support experiential learning. What, what is experiential learning and why do we need it? So, experiential learning is really, in some ways, probably the oldest form of learning and in some ways the most effective. It's effectively learning by doing. It's giving students opportunities to work while they learn, giving students projects that enable them to apply concepts to real-life situations, providing environments where students can develop their own ideas, build their own companies or nonprofits or, or creative projects. And it's, uh, it's certainly becoming more popular as we're discussing more and more the importance of bridging the skills gap and helping students transition into employment. Well, as an entrepreneur, and that's been my career my whole life, I certainly know that it's different <laughs> what is said in the books and what is happening when you practically apply uh, the concept. So uh, absolutely, I can see the complete value to it. How are students different on campuses today? You've spent a long time in your career working with different generations. What do you notice? What's different? Um, you know, there's probably more that's similar than is that is different. I would say students today are certainly far more diverse than they were in the past, um, especially in Canada, where we recognize that post-secondary education is more of a right than a privilege, and we try to create uh, opportunities for large percentage of the population and an increasingly diverse group of students. Most, I find in most of the classes I teach, I learn as much as I share because uh, students are are so creative and so knowledgeable about things that I don't necessarily know about. And I think that that's in part because. Uh, information is so much more widely available today than it was when when I was a kid. And I remember very distinctly when I was a, a kid, one of the things that differentiated the sort of privileged kids from the underprivileged kids was whether or not you had an encyclopedia at home, because mm-hmm. that gave you such a competitive advantage in terms of doing your assignments. And my mother, who was a medical secretary, basically spent half of her income for a couple of months in order to get us encyclopedias. Now information is obviously much more widely available, but we still see incredible disparities between the kids that have 
access to technology and knowledge and coaching and social networks and the kids that don't. So I think, as I said, the diversity in the post-secondary institutions we see today is a lot different than when I went, but also the potential of the kids that we're teaching is, is far greater than perhaps what we saw when I was a student. And you mentioned your life as a child. What was the 10-year-old Wendy like? What were you into? Um, how were you spending your time? Oh, 10-year-old, 10-year-old Wendy was uh, a bit geeky and, and uh, ahead of myself in school. And so my father actually died right before my 10th birthday when I was in grade six. And that summer, I babysat for... I think it was 50 cents an hour in order to earn enough money to buy fabric so my next door neighbor could make my clothes to go to school that September. So 10-year-old Wendy was uh, bookish and very focused on school, but, um, you know, we I grew up without a lot of money. And while my father had gone to university, as I said, my mother was a a medical secretary, and while she really valued university education, she wasn't able to provide a lot of guidance. I, I found out what an engineer was when I was working with them in my first job after having graduated with a um, master's degree in medieval history. I thought engineers were the guys at the back of the train that you waved at when the trains went by. So in some ways, I think... Um, the experience that I had growing up has made me acutely aware of uh, the impact that socioeconomic status and privilege and social capital have on kids' opportunities. And if I look, for example, at at my daughter's options, you know, if she had wanted to go to law school, she would have had money to take an LSAT prep course. She would have had lawyers and judges coaching her on on what to put in her application. She would have known that she had to study very hard for the LSAT. She would have known the kinds of things she needed to put in her application, the kind of volunteer work that she had to have. It's a very different set of uh, opportunities than, you know, a kid I know whose dad is a is a cab driver from Pakistan. So I think that those things have a huge impact on what the demands are in post-secondary in terms of leveling the playing field. So let's talk about Diversity Leads and the Ryerson University's Diversity Institute that you founded in 1999. It makes so much sense now. And you were really quite a visionary to start that in the 90s. Can you take us back to that time? Well, it's, it's interesting because it was actually after the Montreal Massacre in, uh, on December 6, 1989. I got very involved in gun control, as many people know. But I also, I remember being in a meeting. There was a December 6th um, memorial committee, and I was in a meeting, and they decided that somebody needed to tackle the issues of gender in engineering, and they were looking for a volunteer to uh, to teach equity issues to all the first-year engineers at Ryerson as part of this strategy. Wendy, at least now you knew what an engineer was. I knew what an engineer was. <laughs> and I remember the head of equity at Ryerson said, I'm not doing it. There's no way I'm going in there mm-hmm. and talking about equity to the first-year engineers. 
So I was tasked with developing a module on equity issues with a focus on gender for all first-year engineers at Ryerson. And one of the things that I think was smart and really shaped my thinking about diversity was I knew that there would be very, very, very few women in the room, but there were a lot of racialized minorities at that point in Ryerson. So I really focused on broad issues around prejudice and discrimination and bias and linked many of the barriers that racialized minorities were facing in terms of, you know, access to employment or housing or, or all of the things that were were issues um, in the early 90s with the barriers that women were facing. And that proved to be quite, quite effective. The other thing I, I did a lot of um, was, uh, and I realized in retrospect how, uh, how uh, progressive uh, Gene Roddenberry was with Star Trek, but I actually used <laughs> Star Trek episodes to um, to look at you know uh, how uh, how women were were uh, positioned in you know the original Star Trek versus Next Generation and so on, and encouraged lots of discussion and and I would say I did that for three or four years, and I think by the fourth year. Um, it, I, I saw a palpable transition because I remember going to the class and, you know, doing the lecture and I had self-assessment tools that were very similar to kind of unconscious bias and privilege tools that we, in fact, use today in big companies. But at that point, the kids were all looking at me and saying, like, what's your point? Because things had, had changed so dramatically in the early 90s in terms of awareness of of some of these issues that by the fourth or fifth year it was pretty clear that, um, that I really wasn't needed in, in the same way. And at that time, um, my colleague, Peter Hiscox had actually been advocating with the um, professional engineers of Ontario to get discrimination and harassment built into the uh, professional practice code. So in Ontario, if you were an engineer, you could actually lose your license um, if you were found to be engaging in, in those sorts of activities, which was incredibly progressive, you know, in retrospect. Uh, so, but the course of doing that work got me interested in doing research. And I think I did my first paper on, uh, women in technology in 1992, 1993, somewhere in that time frame. And that was really what what started that whole line of research that I was quite active in. And yeah, it's our 20th anniversary. And when I think about how the world has changed, um, it's, uh, it's uh, been a bit of a bit of a trip. And what's your assessment? How are we doing right now, uh, particularly in Canada? Well, if you look at uh, if you look at the issue of women in technology, which is what brought me into this, there are fewer women in computer science today than there were 30 years ago, and there are only marginally no, more women in engineering. So, you know, one of the things that I bring to the whole discussion around inclusive innovation and women in entrepreneurship is the observation that we've been doing a lot of work and expending a lot of energy 
for a long time to try to advance women in technology, and what we're doing is not working. So the rainbow posters and the sending astronauts in to talk about how science and technology are great has not really um, moved the bar. And it's part of the reason why I've become very, very interested in evidence-based strategies for driving change. Mm -hmm. And what's it going to take to up the numbers? In your view, what's what's the quick answer? <laughs> we have been very patient, you know. The quick answer is having an evidence-based strategy that's grounded in in what sh- shifts behavior as opposed to wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in public health, and we know that education is the least effective way of changing behavior. Engineering is the most effective way. That's why speed bumps work much better than saying, you know, say no to driving fast. And so if you extrapolate from what we know, um, particularly in public health, about how to change human behavior, we have to think about um, how we can engineer, how we can create real economic incentives, how we can create real uh, regulatory consequences, as well as how we educate. If we think about women in engineering, what you see is universities like York, and the Lausanne School have actually set a target of 50% female representation. Queen's and some of the other universities, around 30%. Other institutions are more like 10%, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a huge disparity within the sector of engineering schools in terms of who's making progress and who's not. And what that tells you is in spite of all the talk about you know, women don't like math and women don't like dirty, dirty jobs and, and all of the talk. The reality is institutions who are intentional and put in place processes and programs are much closer to achieving gender parity than institutions that don't. And that tells you it is not the pool, it's the processes and it's the commitments. So thinking about, if you think about um, women in entrepreneurship, of course, some of the government programs that have been put in place that are targeting women in entrepreneurship, hugely important. But procurement, um, procurement policies will make a huge difference because you create markets, you create consequences, you create accountabilities for how people spend their money. Um, you'll see behavioral change. So, you know, I've been doing this long enough that I think talk is great, but I'm really interested in what actually will drive change. Absolutely. I want to share a quote with you that Sarah Blakely, she's the founder of Spanx, said, I am not fearless because I'm scared of a lot of things. I am courageous. How does that quote resonate with you? And what's the last courageous thing you've done, Wendy? Oh, that's interesting. I think I am more fearless than courageous. You know, when when you hear a lot about the confidence gap, which is very real, and Mm -hmm. I can show you the research that that shows that in grade three, little girls do better than little boys in math and in English, but little boys are more likely to say they're good at math and English. (laughs) And that that persists... um, for, for many women in particular, right through to the CEO level where we talk about imposter syndrome and so on. But that's never really been an issue for me. I think 
partly because of some of the volunteer work I've done. If you deal with the the parents of children who have been killed with guns, if you work with you know refugees who have lost everything, it gives you real perspective mm-hmm. on what actually is scary. And you know, nothing that I do on a day to day basis is scary in comparison to things other people I know do who are, you know, police officers or surgeons or nurses or, or whatever. So fear is not really um, an emotion that shapes my behavior. I do think that it's an incredible barrier to many, many people and trying to find ways to frame things so that they recognize that the risk of doing nothing is greater than the risk of acting and failing is probably one of the biggest challenges we have as a country. And I do think that encouraging more smart risk-taking is critical. I'm famous for always saying that three out of five is better than two out of two. And I do think that many people are so burdened by fear of failure or fear of being less than perfect that they become paralyzed. Yes, absolutely. Now, let's talk about the Women Entrepreneurs Hub. So the funding from the government, this is really exciting. I'm excited to get my research on women entrepreneurs and export underway as part of this hub. This is a big commitment and a a really exciting opportunity for Canada. Can you share the vision and, and give us the scoop? Sure. The Women's Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub in some ways is very much a reflection of the way that we've operated with other projects. So while its primary objective is to mobilize and share research among practitioners who are trying to advance opportunities for women entrepreneurs, we really tackled it from a systems perspective. The money that is going into supporting women entrepreneurs is transformative. It's incredibly important. The government really deserves a lot of credit. However, compared to the money that is being spent broadly on research, on innovation, on entrepreneurship across Canada, it's really only a small fraction. And so what the bigger challenge is is to try to find ways to open doors in the mainstream organizations at the same time that we're supporting the women-focused organizations. And so we made a commitment to really tackling this issue from an ecosystem perspective, to look at what the policies and practices are in the incubators that may be presenting barriers to women, the ways in which unconscious bias and and traditional approaches and dragon's den pitching competitions may exclude people because even though, you know, dragon's den is great theater, there's no evidence at all that it's a good way to pick successful businesses. We know if you call a meeting and you say, we want to talk to all the aspiring entrepreneurs at Ryerson, What we will typically get are people from engineering, maybe some scientists and maybe some business students, predominantly men, because if you think about it, the dominant images of entrepreneurs today are tech and male. 
You know, it's Jobs, it's Zuckerberg, it's Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, it's people who represent 1% of the entrepreneurs. People don't talk about, you know, Kylie Jenner and Oprah Winfrey, not necessarily my favorite entrepreneurs, but, Mm -hmm. but, you know, Kylie Jenner is a billionaire (laughs) at the age of 22 or whatever. And, and so the very image of entrepreneurship is highly, highly gendered and trying to figure out ways to create more inclusive definitions to break that notion that entrepreneurs are men, to break the notion that entrepreneurship is only about science, technology, engineering, and math. Because if you make it only about science, technology, engineering, and math, you're going to exclude women because, as I said earlier, they're still really underrepresented in those areas. So really trying to understand what works and what doesn't work so we can put our energy uh, where we're going to get the most impact is a big piece of what we're doing. Very exciting. So final question kind of ties together all of these amazing things that you've been doing. What is your dream, Wendy, for Canada? <laughs> My dream for Canada. That's such an interesting question. You know, I'm the daughter of a refugee. I'm a woman. I've seen a lot about Canada that's amazing, and I've seen a lot about Canada that's quite troubling. I mean, one of the things that I'm really troubled about is the the rise of hate and right-wing extremism, which targets not only women and racialized minorities, but Jews and Muslims and, and, you know, with the attacks in Sri Lanka Christians and so on. So, you know, for me, I think if you travel the world, many people see Canada as a bit of a miracle when it comes to diversity. And it may be that, you know, the Scandinavian countries are ahead of us a bit on the gender issues, but nobody can touch us when it comes to the way in which diversity is embedded as a a cultural value. And it's, it's far from perfect for sure. And, you know, we've seen lots of evidence of that, including the the shootings at the Quebec Islamic Centre. But I really do think that there is something incredibly unique and special about Canada. And and the thing that I often um, use in my presentations was right around the time in Quebec when uh, they were having the debate about barbaric practices in the NECAB. And it's a picture of a physician in a hijab And it says, we care what's in your head, not what's on your head. And I think that that should be Canada's slogan in the world, because I do really think um, that diversity is our strength and we can do a much better job than we've done, but we're still far ahead many other countries. And I think, you know, from a purely economic perspective, Our ability to attract the best and the brightest from around the world is an incredible opportunity if we if we take advantage of it. Our ability to um, harness and nurture the brilliance of young people. You know, we've got one of the highest post-secondary graduation rates in the world, and we know that post-secondary education is really key to social mobility, and social mobility is is the key to equality and inclusion and all all those things. So, you know, for me, it's always, uh, is the class half empty or is the glass half full on these issues? Because, 
we've certainly got things that we could do better, but we have some incredible assets in this country that I really hope we can uh, continue to take advantage of. Thank you for sharing your inclusive Canada dream. A global champion for the participation and advancement of underrepresented groups, an innovator, and a recognized, stellar, inspiring volunteer. Dr. Wendy Sukier, thank you so much for joining us today on the Fearless Women podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to the 30% Club Canada for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. The 30% Club believes that gender balance on boards and in senior management not only encourages better leadership and governance, but diversity further contributes to better all-around board performance and ultimately increased corporate performance for both companies and their shareholders. Want to learn more? Visit their website, 30percentclub.org, and select the Canada chapter to find out about membership, supporters, and key resources. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca women.